feel like those high-end restaurants just are able to put the time and the money and the effort into curating these spaces as carefully as you would a gallery or an installation um, from the service to the, the furniture. Um, and, and I just love that there's that much care taken in sort of delivering an experience to people. I often think of food as art, but what about art that is food? Elizabeth Willing is a Brisbane-based visual artist whose sculptures, installations, prints and paintings often explore food. She also presents concept dinners and collaborative performances around the dining table. Her exhibitions have been held all over the place, including Berlin, Museum in Denmark, Basel in Switzerland, and she's currently got a show at Tolano Galleries in Melbourne. Elizabeth, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to Dirty Linen today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be speaking to you about your art and about the way it relates to food. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do. Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm a visual artist. Uh, I work across a lot of different mediums, as, as your introduction kind of explained, but you could say it's primarily sculpture and performance. I've been working with food as a material for around 13, 14 years, pretty much since I started making art at university. Um, and I, I tend to use food materials uh, as in my sculptures and installations, but I also um, do a lot of research into food and um, use the ideas around food as material as well. So um, the practice although it seems pretty specific to be focusing just on food. It's extremely broad as well in its approaches to that topic. Yeah, I mean, I feel like food is it's sort of endless and that's why I love writing about it, talking about it, engaging with it in all different ways. I feel like it is such a, it's such a starting point for conversations and thoughts about all kinds of things. I mean, is, is that, does that resonate with you as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when I started using food as a material, it was because I enjoyed making food, um, eating food as well. Um, I also kind of grew up with some interesting relationships to food in my family and, and things, but it never really seemed that important. But the more I started using food in public spaces and galleries and kind of opening up the work to interaction and participation, um, the more I found that stories were really important when, you know, connected to food and, and the more research I did into it, um, absolutely the, to- the, kind, the kind of themes that I started working with exploded because it's just so fascinating and so diverse. So um, definitely my personal interests have driven it from the beginning, but um, seeing how diverse the different stories are and, you know, in, in that field and, and, the, and as well how, how diverse the um, – the kind of people are that telling the stories has has continued to drive the work and, and push it in different directions. So I think you need to give us some examples of the kind of work that you do. Obviously, we should all be like seeing it or we should be at one of your events. But in the meantime, let's, yeah, can you just describe some of the approaches that you've taken and, and some of the um, exhibitions or installations that you've been part of? Yeah, sure. Um I mean, I do agree seeing it in the flesh is the best because it is a really multi-sensory sort of practice. So even though I can explain what it might look like, um, 
it's impossible always to explain the smells of experiencing these kind of works. But for example, um, a work that I've done a couple of times uh, is using uh, Pfeffernus biscuits, which are those sort of dome-shaped gingerbread cookies that you might eat at Christmas, and they have like a thin white crust of icing on them. And um, I glue those to the gallery wall in a grid pattern uh, with royal icing, so the whole work is kind of edible. And um, throughout the course of the exhibition, people can bite the biscuits off the wall and reveal the kind of brown, beautifully smelling, spicy gingerbread underneath. And so the kind of pattern of consumption and people's interaction with the work is revealed um, in the the sort of traces of people's biting or eating. Um Whereas a work that I have on at Tolano, um, for example, in the current show, uses those sort of horrendous sherbet tubes. They're like see-through plastic tubes filled with coloured sherbet, like coloured sands. And um, I I get you know, a thousand or so of those and, and chop the ends off and join them end to end just by kind of squishing and crushing the end and, and poking them into the next one to create one continuous looping tube um like a big kind of racetrack around the gallery and uh in that process the sherbet spills out onto the floor and leaves traces and um spills of quite bright colorful um sherbet markings as well so that that piece isn't necessarily edible but it's again it's a very um multi-sensory kind of work nevertheless so those are a few examples of the sculptural um, food-based material works. But as you said, I also create dining performances, which take as their starting point you know, fine dining experiences, but then introduce a really um, sculptural elements into them where I'm reworking, you know, new sort of ceramic plates or redesigning the glass cup or um, creating scented cutlery, something like that. And um, gosh, I also do printing and video. It's, it's, it's endless. I, I follow. I follow my ideas, so it can it can come in any form. Uh, I just have to ask about scented cutlery. Yeah, <laughs> um, I was I was very fortunate um, a, a few years ago to go and work with um, the Experimental Food Society in London, and I worked with a, a scientist called Charles Spence over at Oxford, and he was um, he introduced me. His whole area of study was around cross modal processing, so. Um, the way that our senses come together to influence flavor. So what we're seeing and how that influences our flavor, the flavor of the food, what we're hearing, what we're feeling. And um, that idea and the research that he's done and that people have done around the world around this idea just kind of blew my mind. And I wanted to take a lot of these ideas and start to integrate these sort of formal qualities and olfactory qualities and auditory qualities into sculptures that you could interact with at the table. So the scented cutlery, I mean, originally I made them out of porcelain and um, just didn't didn't glaze them so I could sort of dunk them into, into scents or, you know, essences and things. So as you're eating off this cutlery, the smell is wafting around your face and you're kind of maybe – you know, tasting something, smelling something else, and that kind of comes together to form an entirely new flavour that's maybe surprising or a bit confusing. Um, I also made the scented cutlery out of timber, which absorbs smell very well too. And the beauty of these materials is also that as you're handling them, that the warmth of your hand um, 
you know, activates the smell a little bit more, warms it up and releases it even, even more so. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I just have about 50,000 questions, so I'm not sure where to go. But maybe let's just go back a little bit. You mentioned that when you were growing up, you know, there were interesting relationships with food. Like what are you, what are you talking about there? Um, I mean, I won't go into the specifics because I think um, it'll take some more time to really fully understand like everyone trying to figure out their families, you know. But I think that, you know, the I got this sense that the eating and psychology were deeply entwined. Um, that's something that I've only just kind of started to understand or reflect on probably in the last decade or so. But um, so there was some sort of you know, complex relationships in that way in a psychological sense, but also some severe sort of allergies as well that we were dealing with in the family. And then on, from my perspective, I, I kind of expressed my ethics through eating. So I was a vegetarian for most of my teens and twenties as well. So, you know, I don't have those kinds of relationships with food that are kind of warm and nourishing and, and deeply entrenched in culture in 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 that really classical sense you know um i have um, a bit more of a maybe complex or fractured um relationship to food uh and i I know maybe maybe the work is kind of one way to figure that out but i also just think that maybe my upbringing is like a wonderful fertile platform for trying to reimagine food as well you know when when you lack strong roots or you kind of I don't know keep jumping around a bit with food then um you know it's like starting fresh every every time so there's positives and negatives to that but that's yeah it's kind of the context of which yeah of my food education yeah that's so interesting and the works that you're ex- exhibiting at the moment at Tolano they're also really tied up in fermentation and yeasts and then there's also potatoes involved so can you tell us a bit more about all that yeah, and um, and I think to kind of return to the idea that I was just talking about, um, mental health is also a, a really strong theme in those works. So I'm often c- kind of thinking about the way that um, self-medication was sort of demonstrated to me um, growing up. So the things that we ingest to kind of make ourselves feel better, so alcohol, plant-based sedatives or drugs and those sorts of things, um, those sort of themes definitely come through in the work through the representation of motifs such as like um, marijuana or St. John's wort or valerian. Um, but also, as you said, yeasts are like a really common thread and something that I've been working through um, more prominently since I did a residency with the Australian Wine Research Institute supported by um, ANAT down in Adelaide and um, – my time at the Wine Research Institute opened my eyes to the massive role that, you know, yeasts play in that industry, but also knowing very well that they're like yeasts are a collaborator in producing bread and, and beer. And and I just kind of love the idea that there's this like little organism that we have to work in collaboration with or domesticate or they've domesticated us or I don't know what it is. But um, the yeast also comes through in this kit flip print which I've been doing for like 10 years or so so I mean I'm I'm interested in potato printing and it's it's led me to the kit flip potato which is that lovely wormy you know 
uh, wriggly sort of potato, which is a bit fancier, <laughs> which I kind of <laughs> love that it's a little bit um, a little bit posh or something when you're talking about something so silly as potato printing. And it so also what- looks a bit like a poo or something too. So it's it's a bit of a contradiction in in potato form. <laughs> and um, so t- how do you, like, what do you dip it in to create the prints? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not much of a, a, a stretch from what a kid would do, you know, with potato printing or what, you know, what you might have experienced as a kid if you had the opportunity to do potato printing. You just chop it in half and uh, get like a sponge roller and roll acrylic paint onto it. And it's it's definitely something that I've been honing, like the way that I do it is is different to you know (laughs) how I was doing it 10 years ago um and I generally print directly onto raw linen which has this relationship to like a tea towel or a tablecloth or something like that as opposed to something more art material like a you know like a primed linen or something like that so I'm trying to just keep that raw material but yeah I just sort of stamp the potato. Sometimes I overlap them. Sometimes I carve into the potatoes um, first uh, to see what happens when I make those prints with the carvings. Yeah. Wow. I do remember, yeah, doing potato prints myself and also doing them with my kids when they were little. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting. It makes me sort of think, you know, what other of those, you know, kindergarten art techniques have, do we shrug off when actually we could, you know, return to them? Um, I guess yeah. even with the sherbets, it's like even, the, you know, the mess that you that you can make with food and, you know, kids, kids do make mess and sometimes take, joy in in making mess and you know I suppose we're we're trained to become neater I think it's it's really interesting to think about you know where messiness can take us in terms of I don't know how we relate to food yeah uh, it's it is something I've been thinking about um in particular the way that mess can reveal the sort of performance of making you know like the way that when you're making pancakes in the morning the the, the flour left on the floor and on the counter is kind of this, the traces of, of that performance in the morning or something. And, and that's a little bit how I think about this like sherbet that's sprayed across the floor or that spills out of the tube in this like wiggly way. Um, I'm definitely interested in, in performing, but also things that tell the story of performance, because a lot of the time it can be quite difficult as a visual artist to kind of capture a performance outside of like videoing it or photographing it, you know, but if you can try and capture that in an installation or a sculpture, that's really exciting to me. So I know that gender politics in food is something that you've also engaged with. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. um, I mean, there's some really interesting, sometimes I look at it from, from two perspectives. There's like the home kitchen, the domestic kitchen, which, traditionally not not you know less and less these days but it's sort of um dominated by the female um and that's kind of a narrative that's been pushed down through my family where my my nana was um it was kind of the only way that she knew how to show love actually is is through food and so there's kind of this you know matriarchal dominance of the kitchen and then you've got the kind of high-end kitchen which is typically again i was talking in stereotypes here um dominated by the male chef and that's a space where it's not so much about 
love and caring and and knowing who your your audience is that's more a place where it's like creativity and um you know the labor is is expressed more towards entertaining or something like that so these two kitchens both really the kitchen of the mother and the kitchen of the the high-end chef really appeal to me as spaces of making because they express food in such different ways and such different outcomes from them outcomes come from them um so i love home cooking and, and baking i'm definitely like a novice at it but i also completely love going to like really high-end restaurants and, and experiencing that as art and so I take sort of narratives from both of those kitchens but but it is important that I'm looking at it and at these stories from a female perspective you could say and a lot of the the forms and motifs and and um, performances that I create definitely um, draw from feminist dialogues you could say. Mm. I mean, it's so interesting, you know, in those, uh, those, I guess, stereotypical, but actually also very existent uh, male dominated kitchens, they, the, those chefs so often refer to the mother or the grandmother or, you know, this, the sainted aunt um, and those dishes that, you know, hooked them onto food or, you know, taught them about flavor. And then, the, you know, the, but their renditions of them all have this, you know, quote unquote, elevated, um, uh, angle to them where it's like, yes, that was the food that nurtured and nourished me, but it somehow isn't good enough for this scenario. Like there has to be this, this it has to be changed and, and developed and that yeah, it has to be this like, I don't know, this this male gaze applied to it or master, it has to be mastered in some way. So I, I think those things are so interesting to think about. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't I, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's that's a really interesting way of looking at the way that chefs interpret the that mother kitchen. Yeah, it's um I mean you love those grandmother stories, but then it's also like, well, where's the grandmother, you know? <laughs> like why, yeah. why do we need to have this dish all kind of squared off and um you know, highly quote unquote refined? Like I don't know. Yeah. I love the, I love that food too and I love those experiences and you know it's not just men doing it and you know but it is yeah. um it is a very much a, I think a male dominated space and it is uh yeah it is really interesting. Um what you know you you mentioned you know you've worked with chefs you've been at the the wine institute like what kinds of responses do you get from people that are already in the food and wine world uh, from you know this perspective and interest that you bring to it Um there hasn't been a lot of crossover uh into the food world I have tried many times and just hit dead ends to be honest um I think that people are just really busy everyone is just trying to survive (laughs) that's the impression that I'm getting um and that I don't know there's already a lot of collaborations and stuff going on within the industry I'm not sure that people necessarily yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. Um, I have worked with several chefs, and it's been really amazing, really rewarding experience um, from their perspective. I, I think that they've enjoyed it, but um, it's also really hard, you know. These sort of performances that I do take at least six months, ideally twelve months, to put together, and um, that's just a long time, you know, 
in in the restaurant world, I think, to to kind of be collaborating on something. So in some ways I just yeah. <laughs> I haven't had as many opportunities as I'd like to to kind of integrate into that into that world. That's so interesting. I mean, would yeah, would you like to? Like what's your do you have like a dream um collaboration? Yeah, um, I'd, I'd love to work at many different restaurants, but um, Alinea over in America uh, would be my dream with Grant Achatz. I, th- I think that's pronunciation. Um, that's, I mean, that's where sort of it, it really starts to become art for me. Um, and I haven't visited that restaurant, but just viewing it from the outside, I have had chances to kind of do a lot of food tourism and um, I feel like those high-end restaurants just are able to put the time and the money and the effort into curating these spaces as carefully as you would a gallery or an installation um, from the service to the, the furniture. Um, and and I just love that there's that much care taken in sort of delivering an experience to people. And so that's kind of – that would be a space that I'd really love to – to work in, but I'd also love to just design my own restaurant <laughs> as well from the ground up. Yeah. Uh, well, I think um, I was like when Grant Ackett's came to Australia once, he demonstrated his um, edible uh, like helium balloon oh, at yeah. a demo. Uh, that I went to and it was pretty extraordinary. Like he told the whole story of how they developed the material that could be inflated and then, um, you know, there it was kind of floating around. It's, um, I don't know, like it is really amazing to, I guess, just push the boundaries of what dining can be. But there is also this element of, you know, it's, it's not eating really, like it's, Food, yeah, it's food as art, but is it a meal? I don't know. I feel like it's so interesting to, to think about those things. But, yeah, I, I totally hear you, you know, the resources, you know, to have a dedicated development kitchen and a whole brace of development chefs, I think even to close for some months of the year just to, you know, work on new things, that would be pretty fun. And I guess more is in that sort of, you know, conception and development and, and you know, the final realisation that is more in that art world, art world, I guess, timeline, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I often think of El Bulli, um, that was, uh, yeah. and their, their model as being this kind of beautiful sort of, you know, demonstration of, of that. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's so unrealistic and, and there's just a, a certain amount, I think that people will pay for a meal. And I guess that's the other thing about the food and the art world um, and where sometimes there's that disconnect, you know, there's, there's sort of like a, maybe a price ceiling on a meal because it's, it's performative, but it's, it's ephemeral and, um, you can't really take anything away from it apart from the memories. Whereas, um, when you sell something like an artwork, you expect to be able to kind of hold on to that, or at least some people would. So, um, yeah, there's – especially in Australia, I think there's an even lo- lower sort of price ceiling for those sorts of things. So it's just interesting to think about how, how you know, there's only so much that can go on. There's almost like a limit 
that chefs can put in because they, they can't just keep investing time and money in something that people won't buy. Yeah, but I think there is there is an appetite for for things that happen in the moment and for performance art. And, I mean, you know, concerts, like rock concerts, can be expensive. So I'm not sure why yes. performance art can't be. Um, but, yeah, I mean, hopefully... I mean, just a slight segue, but hopefully now that we've got a, you know, an actual minister for the arts and a prime minister that actually seems to go to the theatre, then maybe there'll be a little bit more investment in those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, do you, is there any, is there any sort of outcomes that you're looking for? Like, are there any, is there anywhere that you're trying to get to with these explorations? That's a great question. <laughs> I think I've been asked that. Um, I, I really love making sculpture and I'd love to be able to make really ambitious sculpture, even in the realm of public art. Um, public art is kind of an interesting space because the gallery kind of deters people from interaction, um, whereas public art is almost like a playground so um, there's sort of some interesting tensions, even though public art can also be relatively restricted. Um, there's something in that that I kind of want to explore. It appeals to me to be able to work on really ambitious sculptural projects. Yeah. Um, but other than that, um, I, I love my studio process at the moment and I love having time. Honestly, all I want is more time. <laughs> to be able to make that's that's one of my goals <laughs> yeah it's so interesting you know to, when you said you know just about the thing about everyone that's working in food is so busy I think that is so true and you know it's perhaps never been more true than it is now with everyone struggling with the with the lack of staff um but I think it's so interesting to think about people who have different in different industries have different practices and just the different cycles and and time lines and time zones that they're in because yeah kitchens are so you know in many cases daily or sometimes you know twice or thrice daily you know they're just yeah. turning this turnover is so different to what most art practices would be and it's um mm. yeah it's really interesting to think about how those rhythms can intersect and overlap and what can be learned um you know from both sides with those those really quite key differences it's really yeah so interesting yeah yeah absolutely um I think that probably visual artists get you know just trapped in different sorts of cycles like I'd say about 80 percent of my time is spent on admin answering emails and writing applications and those sorts of things so um because that's just what you need to do. You have to drive your own work most of the time. So um, for me, that that's just where my time is kind of sucked up into. And um, it'd be really nice to just be able to play more, essentially. But I'm, I'm sure that, yeah, I'm talking about exactly what a lot of chefs would like to do to be able to just play an experiment. Mm, definitely. Um, so... Do you reckon, like, what do you think people will get or start to think about or wonder um, when they come and see your latest show at Tolano Galleries? It's it's really new work, um, which means that I'm pretty clumsy when it comes to talking about it or imagining what what will happen when it goes out into the world. Um, 
I hope that I hope that people will, you know, invest some time in in kind of you know, losing themselves in the patterns, um, in particular the the labor of the works. There's just hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of um, stitching involved in the pieces, uh, in the borders and in appliquing all the pieces onto the fabric. So um, it's been two years of solid embroidery, essentially putting this um, this body of work of linens together. So to be able to kind of – for people to be able to get lost in that and um, think about what labor means – either in the kitchen or what labor means in terms of like hosting or hospitality that I'd really like people to take away from it. But there's a lot of kind of um, motifs and symbols that have popped up in my practice over the last 10 years that are in the works, which will hopefully link people to other parts of my practice and open up conversations with some of the themes that I was talking about, like self-medication and um, yeasts and gender politics and, um, and also things like, food politics and agriculture. These are themes that kind of swirl through the linen works. And then the the floor piece is, is really bright and colourful and will tie in well with the, the linens, I hope. And, um, it's quite it's it's a really colourful, bright show and it's um, and that's amplified by the the really strong smelling sherbet <laughs> in the room as well. So um, I don't really know. I think that time will tell in terms of, of people's response to the work. Um I've really enjoyed making it and 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 really grateful for the support of Talano to to show it. Yeah. Amazing. Well, um we'll put a link in the show notes to the gallery where you, you can see the works, but it's definitely um going to be better to see it in the flesh um in the yeast and in the potato and in the linen and in all in all that stitching. Um congratulations on yeah all the yeah the conceiving of such a show and and all the work that's gone into putting it together and I just yeah I've loved this conversation it's so interesting yeah there's endless ways of thinking about food and engaging with it and I'm really grateful to you for um, bringing us a whole bunch of new stuff to think about today Elizabeth really fantastic to have you on the show oh it's my pleasure thank you very much for, for inviting me on to to talk about the work and and engaging me in some topics that I haven't had a chance to talk about in a while someone who's really interested in food so thank you pleasure this is dirty linen and i'm danny valent we air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives we want to hear from you as well if you have something that needs to be said about a topic get in touch so we can include your perspective Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.